Welcome back to EmigCast, episode 28, The Active Life. I'm your host for the month, Patrick Fink. This month, we're bringing you a conversation that I had with Dr. Andy DeRay. Dr. DeRay is a practicing emergency medicine physician living in Salt Lake City, Utah, but he's also internet famous for being among the vanguard of lightweight ski mountaineering athletes. I had the chance to talk to Andy at his home at the foot of the Wasatch Morning. Mountains. Hey, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Thanks for meeting me so early in the morning. That's all right. I hope that you enjoy our wide-ranging conversation in which I try to tease out the habits, personality traits, and priorities that give Dr. DeRay the almost unbelievable power to balance high-powered athletics with a full-time career in the emergency department and his role as a devoted father. Without further ado, here's Dr. DeRay. Well, why don't we start with, you know, I know some about you from mostly Instagram stalking you, but if you have to explain to someone who knows nothing about you what you do, how do you describe yourself? I am a father of two boys, married, I work as a physician in the emergency room, and I ski or spend time in the mountains every chance I can get otherwise. Do I recall from talking to you previously over the internet that you... Are from Indiana? Well, I was born here. And, in Salt Lake? Uh, just south of Salt Lake, and then within weeks moved away and spent the majority of my formative years in Indiana. Yeah. So, second grade through graduating high school. Okay. And where did you uh, train in medicine? Uh, I started at the University of Illinois and then transferred, actually following my wife out to Salt Lake and did the last two years at the University of Utah. And then I did my residency training there as well. Were you always thinking emergency medicine from the start? No. Uh, I thought I would do some surgical subspecialty um, before I realized that that uh, may have ruined my life and the, <laughs> the lives of those around me. So the lifestyle choice. No. So actually, actually, um, as I went through my rotations during my third year, I enjoyed everything, even OBGYN. I, I, I loved... All aspects of medicine, I just didn't love the amount of time required for each one. I think that in smaller doses, it was perfect for me. So getting up at 4 to go be on labor and delivery by 5 a.m. was way too much. Um, Standing in one spot in the OR for four hours was way too much. I'd rather move around. Um, And so when I did my EM rotation, I thought it was perfect because I got small doses of all different parts of medicine, and and I found it really enjoyable. And I felt like I was... uh, more well-rounded, capable physician, rather than pigeonholing myself into one thing. Mm-hmm. So. so when did you start skiing? Then? Uh, during med school. Really? Yeah. Oh eight, oh nine, probably. I got a pass at Alta for a year while I was still in Illinois, and made the most of that during winter holidays, spring break. Following year, I was a student here and got a pass at Snowbird. <clears throat> Didn't really love it. My brother and I had been uh, climbing a fair amount up to that point. And then a friend of ours, a mutual friend, introduced us to uh, backcountry skiing. Took me on uh, my first tour just right out of the neighborhood on the shoulder of Mount Olympus. Uh, and even though it was a huge struggle for me, it was, that, was, that was hooked. That was, that was it. So that was 2009 and that? And then it doesn't seem like very many years between that and your 
contending pretty heavily in schema races and that sort of thing. For our listeners, let me interject. Schema racing is short for ski mountaineering racing. It takes the up and down format of backcountry skiing and turns it into an aerobic sufferfest that's tackled by skinny people in spandex suits sporting tiny skis. I've dabbled in this sport, but Dr. DeRay has dominated. Back to Dr. DeRay. <clears throat> we, well, in those two years, we probably put in 10,000 hours of skiing. <laughs> or, or the skiing equivalent, you know, easily, easily 100 days a year in the backcountry and um, put in our time and paid our dues for sure. Starting skiing so late, how did you end up being kind of at the vanguard of what is for most people a fairly fringe sport, but is gaining in popularity? Like, it seemed like you were getting into the lightweight skiing, schema racing, just as people were starting to hear about that or know what that was. Um, we had <clears throat> some good mentors. Locally, uh, a friend, Jared Inouye, had already participated on a couple of the U.S. ski mountaineering teams and had had raced over in Europe. Uh, he was the only one racing in full carbon boots and using true race skis while the rest of us were kind of trying to catch up, you know. So he, he introduced us to that mindset light is right early on. And it didn't take long before I realized that one's fitness cannot overcome limitations in equipment. As I went out for a, a tour with Jared and his brother and a, and a friend, kind of local legend here, Bart Gillespie, and I absolutely got waxed. And they were two drainages over, you know, 5,000 feet farther than me into the day, and I was just summoning my first peak, just wasted, laying down, could barely ski down, I was so tired. I ran track in high school and college and thought I had some fitness, even though that's lost during one studies, but yeah, they uh, proved to me that lightweight gear allows you to ski more and go farther, and, and so for that reason, I was very intrigued early on. So were you active during medical school? Uh, in Illinois, sort of. <laughs> I was running a couple times a week, playing flag football or intramural flag football and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then going on climbing trips with my brother whenever I got a chance. And then as soon as we came out to Salt Lake, it's a different story with the access to the mountains and mm-hmm. um, kind of morphed into more of a, uh, an endurance athlete at that point. So the <clears throat> access here pretty radically changed how you were able to be active during school and residency? Uh, I suppose, but it's also more of a mindset. So during the first few years of <coughs> med school, uh, I was uh, gunning, to use a, uh, a med student term, pretty hard. I knew that my wife was ahead of me in med school and that if I wanted to be able to stay with her, I was going to have to be really competitive, even to transfer med schools. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to achieve the best grades, the best board scores, everything possible, so that I would be a, a desirable uh, candidate elsewhere. So I, I spent more time with my nose in a book than, than outside running around, you know, because even in Illinois or wherever else you might be in the country, there's plenty to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have raced bikes, I could have been running 5Ks or, you know, adventure racing, whatever. You, you said that it's not so much the access as a mindset. Can you elaborate on that? Once, well, once we got out here, I decided that <clears throat> uh, I just needed to do more to maintain a level of fitness that I, uh, that I find healthy, that, you know, balanced me in a way that, um, helped me achieve, I guess, uh, some kind of mental health as well, because medicine is taxing on, on not just, uh, one's time, but also I think their, their mental health. And then, you know, by default, their physical health as well. When people just kind of 
waste away in the hospital turning pale and soft. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely felt the, uh, like the life stress of medical school when I mean, you try to go out and run or something like that and it feels like you've been on a rougher training regimen than you have been. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, even getting out for 30 minutes is so rejuvenating. You know, right. Come back, uh, like sometimes I'd be studying and just want to go to bed. Go run for 30 minutes, all of a sudden I'm awake, refreshed, and I can, you know, you can get back at it for a little bit. Do you find that your life stress eats into your ability to train? Or Yeah, absolutely. Time? So <clears throat> non-training stress is real and it's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so whether as a resident that's not sleeping very much, <clears throat> working, you know, 30-hour call shifts, or now, um, you know, after a long training day and not being able to take a nap and recover, but grabbing the kids and taking them up to the ski hill or, you know, wrestling with them or whatever. It's just, it's, it, I, I just don't get as much time to, to rest and really absorb the training and, and recover as other people do. You know, we tease Tom Goth that all he has to do is ski, eat, and sleep because he has a fake job and <laughs> he doesn't have to do anything else, but yeah, he, he, he works hard too. I'm just kidding. What is his fake job? He, he works in software from home. Okay. Yeah. Did you feel while you're in medical school like you were deferring gratification? Absolutely. Um, I actually, as an undergrad, had this kind of premonition or this thought that I'm going to go invest four years, and little did I know much about residency at the time, but invest four years of <clears throat> very delayed gratification, total boredom, to set up my life after that. And it is truly paid off. I worked incredibly hard for a number of years, and, and my brother and I, who's also an emergency doc, we joke all the time about how we can't believe that we are living where we want to live, that we have amazing jobs, we have time to go backcountry skiing and to do what we do, and yeah, it, it's all paid off. So what does your work schedule look like now? So I work probably 14 or 15 uh, eight-hour shifts a month, uh, mostly late afternoon, early evening shifts, so... I'd say a typical shift is I go into work at 4 p.m. and I get off at midnight, get home, get to bed by 1, 1.30, and then have a couple days off, do that again for a couple days, and, and so on. And I actually find day shifts, like 9 to 5, to be the hardest, and I feel the worst. Um, because by the time I get my kids off to school, get to work, get home, spend the evening at home, uh, it is a little bit more difficult to get out into the mountains or to... Right find some personal time. So for everybody working at nine to five, I sympathize. What kind of schedule did you have during residency? Did it let you get outside more? Yeah. So fortunately the rules, the hours restrictions in emergency medicine are a little bit different than uh, for most residents. So my first year, I think we worked 22 shifts a month and then 20, then 18. Um, and those were eight hour shifts, but we also had academic responsibilities on top of that. So in total, the, the workload was heavy but tolerable, and I made do by sleeping less. <laughs> I was going to say, what did you have to give up to make it work? Yeah, I mean, there were times when we definitely would uh, burn it short at night so we could go get out and ski in the morning before a shift or something like that. I remember waking up one time at, I think, 2.30 to go ski one of our bigger peaks around here to make it to work by 9 a.m., and I come in and the, the attending was... He was like, how was your morning? I'm like, pretty good. I skied Mount Timpanogos. And he was utterly flabbergasted that, one, we had had time already, and two, that I got up that early to go do it. So your wife is also a physician? Yep. 
What is her specialty of choice? Uh, you ready? Reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So OBGYN trained and then got, went on for uh, further training in infertility. How do you sort of balance your two schedules and the kids? She's mostly the unfortunate 9 to 5, although I guess it's more like 7.30 to 5. Um, she has one day off a week, occasionally takes call on the weekends, uh, and I work a lot in the evenings. And so it's not necessarily balancing time with the kids, but with each other. Okay. Um, it's finding time for our relationship, which can be hard. Um, because I get plenty of mornings with the kids, weekends with the kids, evenings, whatever, days off. I have a week off every month um, that I guess a lot of dads wouldn't get. Um, and she is as devoted a mother as can possibly be. She's Any chance she's not at work, she's with the kids trying to give them a magical childhood. Um, it's just finding the Friday nights for a date or whatever for us that gets a little bit more difficult. Does she ski? She does not ski. She skied twice in her life. Really? She has no interest. Yeah. What, what does she think about how much you ski? Uh, she's supportive. Yeah, incredibly supportive. She realizes that it's part of my life, and you know, maybe that wasn't a part of my life when we got married, but she's accepted it. And... <laughs> <laughs> what does that support look like? The sense just, you know, saying I support you in that. But... Um, it's fairly understood that every Saturday morning I'm up at 6 and I'm out skiing, and she's playing with the kids until I get home, you know, and I normally try to make it back by noon and uh, make sure to thank her because that's a privilege, but, you know, just things like that where it's, that's become our routine and, and she, I think that if I didn't get out and ski, she'd straighten me out and tell me otherwise and say, you better, you better get going. When, uh, when we talked on the phone last night, you were pretty clear. You were like, these are my two priorities for the day. <laughs> yeah. I want to, I want to go skiing by myself or I want to take water skiing. Is that sort of like clear boundary and priority setting, something you make a habit of? Yeah, I'm really bad at actual life. Um, so paying bills, doing my chores around the house, uh, whatever. I mean, I'm always going to show up to work early and I'm always going to, like, there's certain, I know, responsibilities that I don't shirk. But mm -hmm. anything else that can kind of fall by the wayside, um, it does so that I can ski first and that I can be with my kids first. While I was driving down here to drop my fiance off at the airport, she was talking with me about this book she was reading called Essentialism. I haven't read it, but I guess one of the primary complaints is this guy's like, Americans, you ask them what their priorities are, they always say five different things, and a priority is like the first thing. Mm -hmm. What is that first thing for you? Uh, family will take priority. And if I feel that that's slipping, then something else has to change. Like uh, over the holidays, uh, just the way it is, covering vacations and things, I worked a number of evening shifts in a row and wasn't able to see the kids at bedtime. And they were kind of crying about it and saying that they missed me, which is pretty sweet, but um, something had to change. And so I, I ended up with, uh, I think, only working one day and two weeks after that. So balance has been restored. And how do you kind of balance out the priorities of sport and work? Um, I guess I'm just in a fortunate situation where my wife works and I don't have to work that much to support the family. So um, I, I, I do work and I, work, I try and help out my colleagues and work kind of the, the average amount. But if it comes down to it and something else is slipping, I can work less. So when I, when I pitched the idea of interviewing you to the attending who sort of oversees our podcast, uh -huh. 
he thought it was a great idea because he's flabbergasted that anyone is able to spend you know hundreds of hours outside in addition to being a family man and you know work responsibilities and, and all that what do you think makes that difference where like to him it's inconceivable well i think how many hours a week do you think the average american works average american family guy 40 easily it's got to easily be 40 right yeah yeah the the i think it's the germans have an expression that you work like an american yeah it means like you work like a dog i mean you think 40 hours a week 40 plus and i'm talking time away from home mm-hmm. so take your lunch hour into account everything right. else and and hour commute. <clears throat> i'd say most people are away from home probably 50 hours a week mm-hmm. so i work on average 30 hours a week probably and then I'm in the mountains maybe 15, 20 hours a week. And I think that the balance is about right. And then I, in, the, in the remainder of that time, I get to be with, be with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like I just stole 20 hours a week from the mountains because my job has more flexibility. Other people ask me that all the time. <clears throat> how, do you, how have you skied 50 days already this year? Well, I'm only going out for a few hours, a couple hours at a time. And, you know, I think that... Uh, I think I think I, I I have the flexibility I guess just to be able to to do all of it um, because work isn't as restrictive as most people's. Do you ever find that like work stress flows over into your skiing and makes you more conservative there or vice versa? Like do the I compartmentalize really? Yeah. How do you how do you manage to compartmentalize? Like if you have a day where there's like emotionally challenging cases or um, you feel like you you know weren't weren't doing your best at work or I don't know I walk out and leave it I'm on to my next thing you know why should I bring that home to interfere with like the joy of being with family or the free feeling in the mountains you know uh, Jason and I will often talk about cases while we're out skiing um, but it's not because we're stressed, it's a, sometimes just out of a curiosity. What'd you do here? What happened here? What would you have done? You know, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, my wife brings a lot of work stress home, and I don't know why I, I can leave it at work. I'd rather devote my energy to something that I find useful at home instead of I, I just don't find it useful. Do you think that compartmentalization is an innate skill or something that you've learned? It's probably a personality thing, you know. My wife would tries to learn it, but she can't. Comes with her, and bless her heart. I mean, she's really adorable because, and and it shows how much she does care. You know, maybe you could fault me for not caring enough, but when I'm at work, I'm at work, and when I'm at home, I'm at home. And when I'm in the mountains, I forget about everything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's it seems like the drive to be outside and spend a lot of time outdoors is a common thing among. ER oriented people, whether it's residents or attendings. Yeah. Do you, are the, the folks you work with, the other attendings sort of similarly oriented? Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. It's enjoyable going to work and talking about, well, where'd you go ride today? Or where are you going to ski tomorrow? And share pictures and stuff. And um, well, there's this common excitement throughout a, a large portion of our group that um, helps us develop a bit of a bond outside of actual medicine. What do you what do you think is the driving force behind those two commonalities? Is, is it as simple as like 
you know, acquisitions rate highly on a sensation-seeking scale, like the typical adrenaline junkie nonsense? I don't think it's adrenaline junkie because, <clears throat> I mean, think about your work in the department and it's mostly repetitive and mundane. Right. You know, and, and that's a lot of medicine. Somebody told me, you don't choose medicine for what's exciting 1% of the time. You choose it for what you do 99% of the time. Um, but I think... I think a lot of us uh, have a lot of energy, right? I think that's required to work in the emergency department. And so the outdoors are a more healthy outlet to that energy. And then I think a lot of us um, like to explore in a sense, right? So we're getting different patients in all the time with different presentations of the same complaint. And it's sort of like we're always exploring in medicine because we're the ones that see the undifferentiated patient every day. And that same kind of mindset, I think, applies to just going outside and exploring as well. Like seeing, seeing something new daily. You know, we're outside the mountains, but we're trying not to go to the same exact place every day. We want to see new stuff. Do you find any like commonalities between your work experience and being out in the mountains? I'm thinking about like in the ER, as an attending, you're in a leadership role. And then you got in the mountains with a bunch of friends or with Jason Yeah, and you're both attending, you know, yeah. I try and tell my friends what to do all the time in the mountains too. And it doesn't always work as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th I think, um, well, so from that perspective, working in the emergency department, we work as a team with nurses or other colleagues, um, the different various technicians and consultants. And, um, we have to, we're presented with a problem. We have to, together come up with a way to solve it. And in a large part, that's driven by my thought process, but I do get feedback from everybody else. And when we go out into the mountains, a large part of what we do is driven by my thought process and I get feedback from the others that I'm with as well. So you often find yourself like steering, if you will? I don't know if I necessarily, I mean, there, there are some of us, there's, we have a group of probably, I don't know, six or seven or eight different guys that kind of rotate through our regular, our group. And some of them are more vocal than others and some, <clears throat> are more like uh, lemmings than others. And so there's always a good, healthy discussion about what we do, where we go, and why we do it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your medical training or just sort of the, the way that being surrounded by medicine for seven, eight years, um, has that changed your approach to the mountains in terms of risk management or... How you how you think about you know approaching a risky environment? No. No. Did having a kid change it at all? Oddly, no. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I'm uh, a huge risk taker. Mm -hmm. um, but every time we go into the mountains, there is risk. Obviously, uh, we try and mitigate that by not pursuing objectives on dangerous days by uh, honing our skill set by you know increasing our fitness to, that allows us sometimes to get in and out of certain situations by um, using the best gear possible um, but I have a strong sense of self-preservation and I think I did before I had children and, I, and funny I don't think I noticed a huge difference after you know not saying not that but that's not to say that I'm cavalier and wanting to be the first one out testing slopes and stuff. <laughs> Have you had many of what you would consider close calls? I personally have not. Um, 
fortunately, I've never um, unintentionally triggered anything. Although uh, last January, we were trying to link up a bunch of steep lines in Little Cottonwood, and um, it very easily could have been me. But my brother was out in front and did uh, trigger some wind slab that uh, we very well knew about. Uh, and he was caught in an avalanche uh, at the top of a, a very large slide path that funnels down into a tight chute for probably 1,500, 2,000 feet. And he was able to claw his way off of it and arrest himself after only going maybe uh, 200 meters. He did break his coccyx, but he was able to ski out. But if he had been pinned onto the slab and had gone full track, because this thing ran 2,500 feet, if he had run, it was worst nightmare. I thought my brother was dead. And that was just a, a very good lesson and slap on the wrist to never be lazy. Because we had ascended the, the couloir, and on the way up, there was debris. We were, this is welded, it's safe, and at the top, it's kind of a funnel. Half of the funnel had slid naturally from Cornish Drop a few days prior during a, a strong wind event. The other half had not. So we climbed the bed surface of the safe half, traversed the ridge to the summit, and there on the summit transitioned, and rather than walking back down the ridge and skiing the bed surface in what was completely safe, um, we put our skis on and felt, okay, we'll just ski right along the ridge above all of the, the well-identified, um, apparently reactive wind slab, um, and we'll be safe. It'll break at our feet, if anything, and, and we're fine. Um, but there was a small rock outcrop that forced him down probably 10, 15 feet below the ridge, and it was fairly soft up to that point, and then it turned into a hard slab as he went around, um, and, and it immediately cracked above him <clears throat> um, many feet deep, and so it was like a big old refrigerator above him that he had to climb over to get off of this rapidly accelerating hard slab. Wow. So, yeah, very fortunate. Don't be lazy. Did you feel that experience impact your like decision making in the weeks afterwards? Did you dial it back, at, you know, just because of how available that event was? I don't think it necessarily changed anything. It, it just reaffirmed that we need to go through all of our, you know, our checklist and, and, and just not be lazy. If it was some kind of freak thing where we didn't know why it happened, I think that would have made me a lot more sketched out, but right. it was very clear our error and, and it was just a we were lazy that day so it did make us respect wind slabs a lot more have you had kind of close call learning events like that in the er i had a case recently it wasn't my case it was called to a code in the pacio and i got there and basically from the emergency department we're there to stabilize things until the internist and anesthesia, whoever else gets mm -hmm. there. So I got there and there were already five anesthesiologists at the head of the bed and the internist running the code and, the, and she'd had return to circulation. So I was like, okay, my job here is done. I'm going to turn around and walk out. Um, <clears throat> and this is a woman who just had a, a cervical fusion with an anterior approach. <clears throat> they thought that she'd had a respiratory arrest from an expanding hematoma. And short story is it seemed like if I had spoken up and had proper tools on my person at the time, then perhaps I could have helped the other physicians there make a difference. Um, 
case didn't go well. So it was just kind of a, a, a good lesson again on preparation and carrying the right equipment. Like a scalpel and a bougie? Exactly. Um, what, what advice would you have for yourself in like, say towards the end of medical school, approaching residency with regards to like that balance between your work responsibilities, your family, sport? Um, well, you earlier said that uh, priority means one thing. What's the most important at the time? And <clears throat> I think in, in every stage of life, something has to come to the forefront. I, I, I don't know. I think that at each stage, you just have to pay attention to what's um, most immediately important and just go after it with all your heart. And at least for me, that's, that's paid off well. And with that, we bring to a close another EMIG cast, giving a big thanks to Dr. Andy DeRay for talking with us about balancing work, family, and an active life. I'm your host, Patrick Fink, and I hope that you enjoyed our chat. A few things that I'll be taking away from our talk include, one, it's important to clearly define your priorities. Two, realistically, we only have one true priority at a time. Three, some lucky folks can compartmentalize work stress to better enjoy time at home. But four, there's no escaping the effect that that stress has on our ability to perform. Finally, whether it's in the mountains, running a code, or seeing the most mundane of patients in the ER, don't be lazy. That's a wrap for this month. As always, you can find us online at emigcast.com and on Twitter at emigcastohsu. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and your reviews there will help our podcast to reach more listeners. Thanks for listening to Emigcast.